Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, and I'm hosting our data-driven CMO series, during which I will interview CMOs who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their business forward. In these interviews, we're going to reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, but also a ton of fun personal stories and great career advice from these incredible leaders. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Data Driven CMO podcast. Today, I have a really special guest. Her name is Carla. And I was actually giving, well, we were both giving context to Ellen on our team that we haven't actually known each other for that long, but I think we talk to each other as if we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, Carla, you have been an amazing influence in my life, such a great help and a mentor and a friend. So thank you for being a guest today. I can't wait to start this chat with you. Welcome. Oh, it's such my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad uh, I'm so glad to see you. Same. Okay, well, we'll start with an easy one because I think I can never get tired of hearing the story, but how did you get started in your journey as a marketer? Uh, you know, I always say I, uh, if I wrote my biography right now, it would, it would be titled something like an unlikely success story. And I was born in Lebanon, raised in Dubai. As you know, when the first Persian Gulf War broke out, my parents decided we're moving everything to the United States. Actually, we were in the U.S. and we were planning on going back to Dubai for my last year of high school. And we didn't do that. And so we ended up staying in the U.S. And I attended school at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And then after that, I went to Thunderbird for business school. The reason I did that is I knew I wanted to do something in international business, but I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I remember it wasn't until graduate school, actually, because my majors in undergrad had nothing to do with marketing. It was economics, political science, and communications. But I went to grad school. And while I was there, ironically, actually, I took a like an insights class, market research class. And I was, I thought, wow, this is a really, really interesting, like you can actually study human behavior, consumer behavior, and actually change their behavior. And someone was like, yeah, that's marketing. And I thought, and I was like, well, I thought marketing was making ads. And, oh, no, no, no. Marketing is way beyond that. <clears throat> and so really that's how I, that's how I started. And then I, I ended up taking an internship at Kellogg's for like six months. And that turned into almost a year and it turned into a job. And I, after I, after I graduated, and then from there to you know PepsiCo and then PepsiCo to Toys R Us and City and here I am at JP Morgan Chase. So it really I kind of fell into it. I had no clue what marketing was and that one class just kind of changed my perception of what it is and what it could be and how it could actually be a driver of business. So that's kind of it's kind of a short story. Well, you're probably the seventh CMO that I've talked to in the series and I've asked this question every single time and the answer is always essentially a version of, I'm really good at left brain and right brain. And this is the job that really challenges all parts of your brain. And so I've decided to pursue marketing for that reason. And I think I hear some of that from what you're saying as well. It's a combination of science and data, as well as creativity, as well as psychology and economics and comms and a bunch of other things all wrapped into one. And it's ever-changing and it's it's ever-challenging as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. You got, you got your start in CPG and I think a lot of great marketers get started in CPG. I was talking to Amy, who used to be the CMO of Zillow. 
she got started in CPG, then she went to Starbucks, then she went to Zillow. And we were talking about the differences between CPG and tech uh, and being a CMO in CPG versus tech. It sounds like in CPG, you have complete control over the kind of PNL. You, you make decisions around the product itself, et cetera. And in tech, in tech, it's really about taking a product that's complete and marketing around it. How have you navigated that transition in your career and how is it now in the financial industry? Yeah, it's actually a really great question. I would tell you honestly that for me, the role of marketers are to put the customer, the consumer, the client, again, whether you're a B2C marketer or a B2B marketer, to put them at the heart of everything you do. And I think when you do that, regardless of whether you own a full PL or you own aspects of a PL or you own different bits and pieces of it, the reality is that marketers really are the advocates for consumers, for clients, for customers customers, for employees. And I think we really have the opportunity, if you look at it through that lens, it doesn't really much matter what you quote unquote own or don't own. I think sometimes, frankly, actually influence is better even than owning, mm-hmm. right? And so, or, or equally just as good. And I think in a world where, particularly in larger organizations, you work in matrix organizations, as a leader, particularly a marketing leader, you've got to figure out how to work within those different functions in ways that, again, goes back to serving the clients, the customers, the consumers, and our employees. So for me, the navigation of it has been less about do I own something outright and more about how can I lead the organization and other functions to really put the customer at the heart of everything we do, whether I own it or whether I influence it. And so that kind of, for me, is is the way that I have, have thought about it. I mean, marketing is, you know, as it relates to financial services, marketing, and I'll talk, you know, just about J.P. Morgan Chase, where I am now, but certainly it's at other places. Marketing is a critical growth driver in our business. And, you know, we, we spend a significant amount of money in marketing to drive not only the brand, but also the business uh, to do both. And so I think no matter where you sit in the organization as a marketer, what you own in the organization as a marketer, I think it's really, really important to make sure you keep the customer at the heart of it. And then you can influence and make impact. I really love that answer. I think the the reality that I've seen is that marketing is more respected in certain industries and less respected in certain industries. And I think a large part of that is that is, is that it's just not understood as a growth driver in certain industries as well as it should. And I think there's overall progress being made in creating that awareness. But as you've had all these different roles, what's been the hardest thing for you to explain to non-marketers about marketing? Yeah, you know, I think a common misconception is that marketing exists to create beautiful ads or beautiful You had that misconception. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. I absolutely did, right? Or to, you know, purely make the products that we have pop, right? And while absolutely marketing are, we are experts at making things engaging, we do so much more than that, right? We research, we ideate, we build, we test, we launch, we measure, we iterate, we innovate, we, and we have to do it for a ton of different constituents, right? Different consumer groups, et cetera. And so, you know, it's not just necessarily about a campaign. It's about, again, putting the customer at the heart of it all and understanding how to deliver products, services, campaigns for that customer and for 
for that client that enables us to drive the business using the values of the brand and the values of the company. And so I think it's just really important that you know we play a growth driver role and we play it with many other functions helping us. So it sounds like everything that you're communicating to the rest of the org is really within the context of growth and framing it Absolutely. as, as well, this is leading to growth. Yeah. And I, I actually always say, Anda, that you know marketing doesn't exist if it doesn't drive growth. So I always say marketing is a growth driver. We exist to drive growth. So I, I say to my team, if everything we do doesn't exist to drive growth, then we shouldn't exist. And growth in so many different components, right? Growth in making sure that our brand reputation is better this year than it was last year, making sure that our communities uh, understand the products and the services that we provide for them, making sure that we are constantly providing the best offers to a certain customer group. So there's so much that we can think about when we think about growth and dimensionalize it in different ways. But ultimately, that is why we exist. I love that. I'm, I'm going to piggyback off of that in a minute to ask you a couple of questions about how you measure that and data and analytics and so on. But before I jump there, one last question on, on your kind of journey as a marketer when you look at your resume, it's really just, you know, up and up and up and up and up and up. And it just looks like a straight into the right growth curve. And I wanted to ask you, what were some of your setbacks or failures or moments of doubt? Do they still happen? How often do they happen? How do you deal with them? Or are you just like super pumped every day? It's just like Carla posters around the house. <laughs> we could have a podcast just on failures, on my failures. <laughs> Oh, only on your failures? Wow, how many episodes? That's on mine, exactly. Because I, you know, look, I feel like there are there are failures every day on every single day, you know, little ones, right? And so not ones that are career limiting or ones that have an impact where I, you know, this happened so awfully that I don't want to be doing this anymore. No, not to that extent. But there are, you know, every day little things that, you know, I would have thought that have would have gone a certain way, but that didn't. And I I really, really Really, really try to learn from those. Um, the biggest one I would say, though, in my career is is my Toys R Us experience, and it's hard for me to talk about it as a failure because, in many cases. I don't see it as a failure, but certainly at the time, it felt like a really big failure. And you know, you can relate to this as an immigrant. You do not want to take any risks. You don't, right? And so, I mean, where are you going to go back to, right? Where are you going to go back to? Am I going to move back to Lebanon? Like, there's just that's not an option. It has never, ever been an option, right? And so, so for me, it was always, you know, don't take the risk, stay at the really big company, the one that's doing very well. Frankly, the one that your parents can tell everybody that you work at, right? I'm very proud of my daughter. She works at this big company. I mean, you know, it's a typical immigrant story. And so, you you don't take those risks. After 13 years at PepsiCo, I met the CEO who um, of Toys R Us at the time, and I decided to join him to try to save Jeffrey the giraffe, which who doesn't want to save Jeffrey the giraffe at Toys R Us? I mean, it was just such an incredible, incredible brand. And I would tell you, you know, less than six months after I joined the leadership team, we sat down and said, we're going to have to file for bankruptcy. And you just, you know, I cannot imagine the things that went through my head Everything from, oh my gosh, I'm not going to have a job to, oh my gosh, my ego is now bruised and what are people going to say about me and everything in between, including first and foremost, 
my team, right? And how do I keep them engaged? And how long do we still continue to fight? So I would tell you, even though publicly that was a failure, I would tell you it was one of the most pivotal experiences, leadership experiences of my career. And for me, ended up being an incredible experience because even from a skill set, going from a consumer packaged goods company to retail introduced me to the world of data, data technology, digital marketing, loyalty programs, things that I have, you know, first party data and the power of first party data, e-com, things that I had never, ever, not never, ever, but kind of dabbled in at in a consumer packaged goods marketing capability and or done from the periphery, right? Mm-hmm. Using somebody else's data. So I knew how to do analytics better than anybody else, but it was using somebody else's data. When it's your own data, it's a totally different story. And so from a skill, a marketing skill set perspective and from a leadership perspective, it ended up being the best thing. So the thing that I would say on failures is I don't love cliches, but they exist for a reason, right? They've happened enough that they become a cliche. And I really, really do believe that it's not what happens to you. It's how you react to what happens to you. And so for me, I could not control at the end of the day that Toys R Us was going to go into bankruptcy. But what I could control was, what am I going to learn from that? What kind of a leader do I want to be coming out of that? And how can I, so long as the company is still around, how can I use it to my advantage as a marketer and learn as much as I can? And so that for me is, that's the clearly the biggest, most public failure, but there are other, you know, little ones every day. I mean, there are, there are ones that have to do with work on the periphery, but they're personal. Again, as a mom, you'll appreciate this, you know, Sometimes I have to make the hard decision where I can't do something that is important to my daughter because I'm on the road somewhere, right? And that's not necessarily a massive failure, but my gosh, as a parent, sometimes you have to overcome feeling like you failed somebody. And by the way, it's usually only you that feels like you failed somebody. Usually everyone else around you is okay. But I think so long as you learn from it and you take it as an experience to enrich you and make you better, it's a win. I love that answer. Thank you for sharing that story with us. It's really powerful. I think the public failure is the one that you probably are almost forced to learn from the most because you have to create a narrative, not just for yourself, but for the rest of the world. And the way you've managed to actually extract all the value from that is really inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. Well, speaking of failures, I think one of the really interesting things I've I've seen in our space is that oftentimes data is used not to analyze something as a success or a failure, but to prove that something was a success. I can't tell you how many times we've been asked as a company to prove that something worked. So I'm curious, how do you think, I don't want to say philosophically, but how do you think about your data function? How do you think about keeping it honest? How does it work kind of in partnership with the rest of the the business units or the corporate marketing teams? Yeah, I often say that there are very few functions in an organization that are 100% objective. And I think the data and analytics functions are are just that. They are 100% or should be 100% objective. And I really try to ask and make sure, and I let them know, I set an expectation that for, for me, that function, the data function is a function that needs to be a truth teller, whether I want to hear it or not. And so we are really focused on creating and developing our data and 
analytics capabilities. We continue to invest heavily in those functions because they're really, really, really important. And for me, those functions, you know, there's obvious skill sets of the function of people that work in data, right? You think data science, analytics, behavior economics, and we have all those people in our in our teams. But for me, how I think about powerful data teams are those teams that can take the data that we have, understand what the business problem is, and then think about how you tell the story using the data that we have. So I always say data for data's sake is just that. It's a bunch of numbers. But if you actually have a data scientist that's a critical thinker that is able to take all of the different pieces of data that we have and craft a story that can actually take a complex analysis and translate it into something digestible, easy to understand, bite-sized insights that people, anyone, frankly, in the organization can understand and that are actionable, that to me is the power of a really, really incredible data and analytics organization. Yeah, you make an amazing point. I've seen so many data teams that are good at data, but they don't think that growth is their responsibility. You train your marketing team to think about growth of the business as their KPI. Oftentimes, tech and data teams or MarTech teams or analytics teams or research teams don't think of that as their KPI. How do you think about creating that culture? I'm fortunate enough that I work in a place where we have that culture already embedded because we empower the data and analytics organization to actually be more to your point than just data crunchers. But I think the way you empower that and the way you create that culture is by almost demanding an expectation that you want them to do that, right? And so for me, if I ever just, and and my teams will, if they're listening to this and anyone that has worked with me will know, I always ask people, what's the so what? So like, it's great that you put this on a piece of paper. What, why should I care about it? Like, what should I know? What should I care about? How is that going to impact the business? And I think as marketing leaders, the more that we ask those questions of our data and analytic functions, the more expectation they have that they are going to be equally as involved in driving the growth of the business as other functions of marketing are, the more they will step up. Because I just have seen that anytime you empower people or you set a real expectation to say, here is what I would like you to deliver, people will more often than not rise to the occasion. And I think folks that have been historically kind of relegated to one small corner of a function, when you tell them that you want them to be more than that, and you want them to contribute to the growth of the business, they will step up. And so I just think the way to create that culture is to actually act it, literally to act it out and to just make sure that every time you see a piece of, you see any data that you're asking that team, what's the so what? Why should I care about that? Great that, you know, this is up by X percent or great that these millions of people behave this way. Who cares? Why should I care? Tell me why. And then the more you do that, people kind of will come back to you going, okay, the next time she's going to ask me why. (laughs) She's going to ask me why should I care? And so I should be prepared. Think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like, uh, but that's to me, the real critical part of it is how can you take, how can you have your data and analytic teams actually be more storytellers through the data that create actionable insights to drive real meaningful impact in the business, I think is, is important. 
I'm curious how the data function sort of reports at J.P. Morgan Chase and how much of it reports into marketing versus other functions. And kind of a second part to that question, are you a believer that org structure matters? Or, I mean, you, you were mentioning the importance of sort of owning versus influencing. And But when it comes to the data function, how do you think about it? It's so interesting that you asked that question because I actually, again, I say this to my team all the time, dotted lines, solid lines, functional reporting, operational reporting, it doesn't mean really anything to me. I feel like in matrixed organizations, you know, needing to have control over too much is kind of an archaic way of of thinking about the business. And so for me, it's what's more important is that I have people that are dedicated to marketing within the data and analytics function, which we have today. They sit in all of the lines of business and they also, we have a central kind of, you know, multi-line of business uh, function as well. That is a partner. I wouldn't, won't even use that supports marketing, literally is a partner to marketing day in and day out. And they would tell you that their day-to-day business and their day-to-day KPIs are all about making sure that they are aligned to the six strategic priorities that we've set out for marketing. And they would tell you that they're part of the marketing team. Where they sit in the organization, irrelevant. They would tell you that they are a part of the marketing team. And so for me, again, it goes back to your question of how do you create that culture? Whether they report to you in a dotted line capacity, which they do for me today, or whether they report to you in a solid line capacity, how do you create? To me, it's less about that. And it's more about, do they feel ownership? Do they feel like they really, day in and day out, they are coming in and they are working on behalf of the marketing function to drive growth for the business? If we can do that, that's a win for me. I love that. Such a good, insightful answer. I also think it's a losing battle to try to own everything, especially in the matrix organization. And it must not be that fun to own that much, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to influence it. Yeah, um, I've learned that over time. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning that in the smaller company. Learn that over time. Um, so one of the things that we're seeing in the market is there's this emphasis, you know, partially because of the economic times we're living in, but this emphasis on ROI, on creating clarity around customer journeys and really intersection of kind of data and content. And that's obviously also the tunnel that we live in. But that to me feels, you know, I'm a bias, feels like a pressing issue. What do you think is one of the most pressing issues for CMOs and marketing teams nowadays? Oof, I mean, there are, there are, there's so many, right? There's internal, there's external. Look, as it relates to data, when I think about as a CMO, for example, one of the most pressing things for me is, Customers have given us access to their data and permission to use it in ways that can benefit them, right? So, for example, how are we using the data that they give us to create more personalized experiences for our clients, right? And so, for me, as I think about our customers, and when I say external, I mean our customers, to me, the most pressing data issue for me is how do we use that data appropriately? How do we use it to personalize content to our consumer? How do we make sure that, again, because you've given me permission, 
how do I behave accordingly? How do I serve up an offer to you that is relevant to you? How do I create content that you see that is going to engage with you because it is relevant at a moment in your life and not just general content or general offers that you would give anybody that mean nothing to me? And I think that for me is the most pressing data issue that we have because we have a proliferation of data. And so what we do with it to be able to create more personalized experiences for our clients, that is on my mind as a CMO day in and day out. When it comes to the internal side on data, again, because there's data in so many different places of an organization, I think marketers really have to think about how do you remove data silos to really deliver on a truly omni-channel, integrated, cross-line of business experience. It's a mouthful, but it is a lot. And so how do we really, really quickly, for example, use feedback loops so that the data that we're capturing and the data we're synthesizing is truly effective in optimizing our marketing spend, which goes back to what I was talking about in how we deliver content and deliver personalized experiences and deliver personalized offers to our customer in the right channel, right? And so, and then the last thing I'd say is innovation. That's another thing that's really pressing to me is how do we use data in a innovative, proactive way to really make relevant connections between our brand and our consumers, particularly when you think about this world that we are in that is ESG and DEI focused and where many brands tend to be very, very reactive. So how do we become much more proactive and how do we drive innovative, proactive ways of using the data that we have because we hear, we see it in real time, we have a lot of it. And so I see the pressing issues as the consumer piece and making sure that we are doing right by them, delivering personalization to them because they have opted in and they have given us permission. And then on the inside of our business, it's really much more about breaking down the silos, efficiency, feedback loops. How do we do things quickly so that we can be innovative and proactive? I think the connective theme across both of those that I hear is a question, which is how do you make data operational? Because if you figure out how to make data operational internally, it inevitably leads to better experiences, more personalized experiences and so on. So I think that's, it's a really key struggle. And I think, you know, it doesn't get better the more data you have and the more platforms you add, but it also doesn't get better if you don't have the right user experience for your teams to kind of learn how to fish, right? As opposed to having the to go back to a data team and look at Excel spreadsheets. I think you're right. I I think this notion, this notion of how do you make it operationalize, how do you operationalize the data is a really, really important one. At the end of the day, I keep saying, you know, data is is really the new currency, but if you don't utilize it in the right way, or if you don't have it in the right places, or if the data itself is not clean, it becomes really, really hard to do any kind of analysis, whether you're doing media mix modeling, whether you're doing multi-touch attribution, whether you're doing whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, whether you're literally just taking data, deriving insight from it to be able to go do something else. If you don't systematize it and operationalize it to have its maximum impact, all it is is numbers. Exactly. Well, switching gears a little bit on content and the world it plays in the journey of a customer. You guys have a bunch of different products. Some are lower consideration, some are higher consideration. And I'm curious how you've thought about the role of content 
given the different products that you have? I'm assuming, you know, obviously because it's a lower demonstration, sometimes the journey is shorter, sometimes the journey is longer. We've seen a lot of companies struggle with what we're calling the missing middle, which is kind of the middle of a journey, especially if it's long. It's really yeah. hard to establish like what's really moving people there. How do you guys think about content and building the content function for all those different products? Yeah. So look, let's start with sort of how do we define how we look at content, right? So to your point, there's so much, like technically anything can be perceived as content. And so really, I think there are many places in an organization where content is created, right? Again, whether it's a long form article that talks about how to save, for example, or whether it's other tools. And I can talk about that in in a second. But I think the bigger thing is how we look at content is important because that gives us a really clear or more clear idea of how we can engage new customers and how we can engage our relationships with existing one. And so from my perspective, as I think about content, I actually believe that there's a true benefit in having an editorial strategy that's centralized within the firm around content. So what do I mean by that? I think a centralized editorial strategy, I think, allows us really to tell stories that serve the entire firm's missions and our principles our behaviors, our point of view, our voice versus only telling the story at the individual LOB level, which by the way, you need to tell the stories and you need to create content at the individual line of business level. But if you have an overall editorial strategy, you understand where different pieces of content sit in what, you know, what part of the verticals and which products we're selling. And so an example of that actually is our consumer bank and our digital marketing teams. We launched an omni-channel campaign focused on increasing Zelle, particularly Zelle fraud awareness and prevention. And the campaign itself highlights emerging payment scams. It's got a call to action to visit our site for ways to protect yourself, your money, your personal information. And it was in response to recent increases in Zelle fraud, for example, But because we had an overarching view of the editorial strategy, we were able to say, look, we're seeing this happening, this occurrence in the marketplace. How do we create content around this? And then where does that content sit? And it wasn't just, you know, one line of business doing it. We were thinking about it as a firm. And so from that perspective, it becomes easier as you think about some of the content and where to place it and how to think about it. And to your point, whether it's long form, whether it's short form, whether it's somewhere in the middle, whether it's to drive awareness or whether it's to drive engagement, top of the funnel, bottom of the funnel. And so I think if you have a, you know, centralized kind of view of what content needs to look like, it becomes much easier to say what kind of content goes into what kind of channel for what kind of message. I love that. It's a really good example. We're coming up on our time. And so I want to ask you a question about the past, the future and everything in between. (laughs) The last 12 months have been eventful. I think the next 12 months are going to be eventful. So as you think about this kind of the change, the biggest changes in strategy between the last 12 months and the next 12 months, what would those be? So look, I mean, I would tell you, I said it before in the conversation, marketing is certainly at J.P. Morgan Chase is the engine that fuels distribution and scale. It drives growth. And so for us, we are always going to invest in places where we think it's strategic and accretive to our shareholders, where we can reach our customers and our future customers. So for us, marketing will continue to be as important as it is today in the next 12 months. Now, obviously, the world, the economic 
economic environment. It's changed a lot in the last 12 months. And so as marketers, just as you know, the overall firm, we've got to really as a function, we've got to continue to pivot and to adapt to what investments make sense and to what messages make sense, right? And so one area in particular that we pay very close attention to is, is consumer trends, as you can imagine. And, and that obviously impacts, for example, our card business, right? Where we spend the majority of our marketing. And so as we have seen, for example, people start to go out more and more heading out to restaurants. We've got the infatuation is one of our newest acquisitions that we brought into the Chase family. And it really is, I mean, you want to talk about content. It's like a really, really, it's it's an example really of our commitment to meeting our customers where they are, right? So they're going out more and more. They're specifically heading to restaurants. And so what we're doing through the infatuation is we're providing them exceptional benefits. We're providing them useful content, one of a kind of experiences at a scale level. We're doing that in Chase Travel as well. My point on all of that is less to tell you about what we're doing at JP Morgan Chase, but more to tell you as marketers how we've got to pivot in the next 12 months. So for example, as people are staring down the barrel of a potential recession and they're really worried about inflation, we believe that we've got to pivot from some of our other messages and go into investing in topics you know, that we should have a role and responsibility in, which is around financial health, which is about protecting your money. So we offer tools, we offer resources, things like Credit Journey, where you literally can go check your credit scores for free. You can set up identity monitoring. That is really important today, right? Because of what consumers are going through. So as marketers, I think in the next 12 months with the volatility in the marketplace, I think we just have to think about how do we pivot, create content and drive messaging that is going to engage with our customers in ways that's relevant for them today, right? And so when we came out of the pandemic, what was relevant for them was things about travel and things about restaurants because they were starting to go out more. What's relevant to them today is they're worried about their money. How do we help them protect their money and save and all that kind of stuff? So I think as marketers, we just have to be really clear about pivoting in the next 12 months because there is going to be volatility in the marketplace. And I just think we've got to think through how do we double down instead of retract from a marketing perspective, but do it in a way that's relevant with content and offers that are relevant to our customers. I love that. It's it's basically adding value regardless of where the customer is in their journey. And I think what's great about working at JPMorgan Chase, no matter what position you work in, is that you guys are, you know, a Swiss army knife. Like no matter what the opportunity or the challenge of the future is, you probably have a product that that taps into that value. So it's it's awesome to hear how you're thinking about being nimble and pivoting. I think it's critical. By the way, I don't think it's just critical for marketing. I think it's critical for every function to think about, you know, how they in the, it, by the way, and it's not just in the next 12 months of volatility. It's just in general. I think we, again, need to be more nimble. We need to be more efficient. We need to invest where, where we are seeing return. And so, but I, I think in moments like this, it becomes even more important for people to double down on marketing, to double down on engaging with consumers and to double down on trying to make sure that marketer marketing through data is driving growth of the business. That's a great message to end on. Thank you so much, Carla, for being my guest today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Anda. Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. 
take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And thanks for listening.